Thanks, Justin. And thank you, everyone, for the prayers and support and the continued prayers and support that will come in days to come. Um, really looking forward to the opportunity to, to see what God's doing around the world. So if you will turn to Zechariah 7, we are continuing our look at Zechariah. Uh, reminder, next week, when we are gone, Ryan Ferguson is coming from uh, North Hills Church over in Taylor's, and he's going to be reciting the book of Hebrews as a sermon, um, which is a really cool opportunity. Really looking forward to those who are here getting to hear that together and listen together. Um, not that he's giving a sermon from Hebrews. He is literally reciting the entire book of Hebrews in order, verse by verse, as it originally was written and presented. So really cool time, and encourage you to see the many connections that there are between the messages of Zechariah and the message of Hebrews in terms of endurance for God's people, in terms of faithfulness in hard times, in terms of looking to the future when all things be made new, all of that. So there's some really cool thematic overlap there as well. So today, we are in Zechariah 7, and we have, uh, as of last week, we have gotten out of the long night of visions. We've started in on some of the following messages, and David led us through the message looking at the crowns and the temple, and this week we look at a different message. So this is kind of a self-contained revelation that God gave to Zechariah in the chapter 7. So let's read through that together, if you all stand really quick as we do that. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord, of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, For these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Please be seated. God, we pray that you would take this text and the message you have here and that you would ground it deep within our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would be speaking to everyone here in a way that I never could. As I say many words in the next 30, 40 minutes, whatever it is, we pray that you would be speaking, that you would be changing hearts, that you would be showing us truth, that you would be helping us to follow you. 
that this would not just be an interesting speech given by someone on a Sunday morning, but this would be you speaking and changing us by your power, helping us to listen, helping us to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the 1800s, there was a German theologian philosopher named Friedrich Schleiermacher. And he's actually going to jump on the screen in a second and show his face, and it'll be great. So you can see him, he'll wave hi. Schleiermacher was the preeminent theologian of Protestant liberalism at the time. And you may or may not recall from your like world history courses and philosophy courses that you did or didn't take that the 1700s was generally the, what we've called the Enlightenment age. And basically the time when man was like, hey, I'm cool. And I think a lot. And my thinking must be awesome. That's kind of the summary of the Enlightenment, right? And so as Schleiermacher came on the scene, one of the big struggles he was engaging was how to reconcile the Enlightenment, a.k.a. the idolatry of the human mind, with the Bible, with theology. And a lot of what he concluded was that Christianity is defined by, religion is expressed by the experiences that we have of God in our own individual experiences. And these things all combine to form right religion, which is a sham. Uh, unfortunately, Schleiermacher had no clue what he was talking about when he said all of that. Uh, and he was rightly called out later by other theologians, one of the most famous critiques being, one cannot speak of God simply by speaking of man in a loud voice. You see, what Schleiermacher had done, what the whole Enlightenment had done, was to try to start with the human brain and human experience and then determine what God looks like what right religion looks like, what all of this. So if you experience God by sitting in your closet and reading the Bible and having the light suddenly turn on, literally because you have someone scheduled to turn on the light for you and that makes you feel good, well, that helps to define what Christianity is. And then if I experience God by sitting here and only just reading the Bible, then that defines it and this defines it. Now we're defining it all by our shared human experience. This is what philosophy of religions courses will teach you in school. Because whoever calls themselves a Christian must be, or whoever calls themselves Muslim or Hindu or whatever must be because they said they are. This idea of self-definition, self-identification. But this is not what Christianity actually is. We don't come with a self-defined religion, which also leads to self-defined results and ultimately a self-word trajectory rather than a God-word trajectory. And I bring this up because this conflict of where do we start when we come to understanding of God? Do we start with man or do we start with God? Is I think precisely what God's driving at here in Zechariah 7. This tension of revelation versus religion, if you will, or, or religion versus revelation. If we're starting with man or if we're starting with God. This tension of receiving what God has said versus defining what God should say. If we start with man, well, we're going to tell him the right way to be. And while statements come out, as they do in modern days, like, I could never worship a God like that. Well, sorry, but that's still who God is regardless. <laughs> but you see, if we're defining religion, then we decide what God needs to be like in order to decide whether he's worthy of our worship or not. If we're receiving instead the revelation of who God is, then we are engaging in a relationship with him based on who he actually is, not based on speaking of man in a louder voice. 
So we're going to be looking today at the condemnation of self-word spirituality. The condemnation, condemning, critiquing of self-word spirituality, a kind of spirituality that aims it toward myself, ultimately, even when we don't realize it. And part of what we have to realize, even as we start in on this, is we might say, oh, I wouldn't do that like Schleiermacher does. When it's, when it's presented like I just said, it's very easy to say, that's wrong, yeah. But we exist as a people in the 2000s who are 300 years beyond the Enlightenment in a society that is very much infected and infiltrated by Enlightenment thinking. We have such a high baseline trust in our own brains we are not pre-enlightenment thinkers. We are post-enlightenment thinkers, whether we want to be or not. And so all of this, we need to really think through carefully, what does it look like for me to practice Godward spirituality? So first thing that we see, and it's, it's demonstrated right here in these first few verses, is that self-word spirituality seeks religion. So what do I mean when I say religion here? I mean practices and rhythms of things that are done for their own sake or ultimately for my sake, so that I can know I'm doing well. Not practices that are done for an overall spiritual health, but practices that are done merely for my own benefit so that I'm solid. We see this in verse 2. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. So their whole purpose in coming was to seek God's favor. So we're coming as this delegation from further north and say, hey, we need to know God's on our side. Verse 3, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So there's their question. Should I keep expressing sorrow and, and abstain, fasting? Fasting from food, fasting from whatever, as I have done so many years. Like, okay, one, should I keep doing this practice? Two, look at me, I've done it for so long. God, aren't you pleased with me? I've been doing this fasting thing. Should I keep doing this? Now, they are either asking this out of a stubborn questioning of can I keep doing the same thing I've been doing? Or they're asking it out of should I keep doing the same thing even though you're currently rebuilding the temple? And the only reason I was doing it was maybe because the temple wasn't built. When they refer to so many years, the people had been in exile for 70 years. So that's a lot of years. It's a couple generations, right? So there was a lot of years of wishing to be back in God's land wishing to be back with the temple built, all of that. But they're asking, hey, how do I get God's favor? Should I keep doing this fasting? They're seeking to do a thing to know they've got it right. That if I don't eat food today, or if I don't eat food for this meal, or if I don't eat food for this week, God will be smiling upon me. They're not seeking to know God, they're seeking to know that by doing a thing, they're right with God. Does that make sense? There's a very big difference there. Fasting rightly performed is not an act by which to entreat God's favor. Fasting is a way to express my dependence on God. Fasting is a way to remind myself to pray. It's a, it's a way to express my sorrow. It's, it's a thing that helps me to pursue God, not a thing that helps me to know that God likes me. Fasting is not bad but fasting can be abused. And this is the tension with all of this as we look at this today. Spiritual disciplines are not bad, but spiritual disciplines can be abused or used wrongly when we are practicing self-word spirituality. One time, Jake and Sarah, they were 
married. They've been married for many years. And Sarah felt that things were getting stale at times, seeing they're in the same old rhythms. One day she went shopping to the grocery store on a Saturday and getting some groceries, and she came home. She gets home, and Jake says, hey, thanks. Just set them here. I'll put it all the way. And here's a gift card. I booked this night for you at this local hotel that has a whole spa included. You've got a massage. You've got all night to just enjoy the hotel. You know, I love you. Have a great evening. Take the car and go. Sarah is surprised, delighted. She leaves and heads out. Jake takes care of the thing at home. Sarah wakes up in the morning and discovers that a custom spread breakfast has been pre-ordered for her and is there with fruits and meats and eggs and everything that she loves. And she's got this breakfast to enjoy. And then she goes to check out because it's time to check out and discovers a limo waiting for her. Limo picks her up and takes her and she goes and is dropped off at a nice fancy restaurant and Jake's waiting there at a table with roses on the table just ready to go. Hanging out, having lunch together. He had gotten babysitting for the kids. They enjoy the day. They go out for biking on the local bike trail, which she loves. They hadn't done it for probably months, maybe years. She can't remember the last time they went biking, but here they are, they're biking. She feels the wind blowing through her hair, and she's just feeling delighted. Like, Jake's, Jake's loving me. I, I, this, is, this is great. This is a romantic weekend I've longed for for so long. It's great. We're, we're reinvigorating things. They go to the evening, and they have, on the local lake, there's a dinner cruise. And they go out on the dinner cruise, and they're just hanging out, enjoying the water and having dinner, great dinner by local chefs. They finally, they get off the, the cruise, and they're heading to the car. And she says, hey, Jake, one thing that's a little bit weird is I keep seeing a couple people off in the distance, and they've been almost everywhere that I've been. And Jake says, oh, okay. Yeah, sorry, if you can, actually, if you can turn over toward that bush and smile and wave, they're, they're, the, they're the cameramen from Mr. Romance USA. They're just, you know, just submitting my, submitting my video for the competition. Sarah feels a, quite a bit different about the whole scenario at this point. And they ride home in silence, and she's fuming with anger. His romance was not for her, it was for himself. And this is what God calls out. Because selfward spirituality seeks religion for its own purpose. And so that gets right into the next point of this, that God exposes selfward spirituality. In verse 4 through 7, he, in specifically verse 5, he says, When you fasted and mourned for all these 70 years, which is what they've pointed out, right? We've been doing this for all this long time. So he's basically just reciting their words to them. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, present day, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? They're saying, look at us, we're fasting. And God's like, yeah, your religion's for you. The whole point of this thing is for yourself. You're not here for me. You're not seeking me. You're just doing these things. You're doing things to benefit yourself, to feel better about yourself, to feel like you're a good God follower, to feel like you've got good religion or whatever, but it's not for me. Your actions are empty. 
because your religion is for you. He exposes that as they are engaging in a form of spirituality that is selfward, directed on themselves, that they're getting exactly what they're asking for. They're not getting God, they're getting themselves and more of themselves and all of the emptiness that themselves can provide. They head on this path and not that one. And as anyone who's ever hiked in the backcountry without any map or anything can tell you, you might think you're headed to that mountain over there, but if you get your trajectory off by even a few degrees, before long you'd be miles and miles and miles away from where you intended to be. Things look similar sometimes, but go on very, very divergent paths. So they're, they're fasting and they're doing things. It looks similar to what true spirituality might look, but they're headed a very different direction. They're still attending the tabernacle, perhaps. They're still even saying prayers. They're still talking to their children, maybe, about God and about their history coming out of Exodus or whatever, but they're not doing it in a pursuit of God. They're not doing it in a Godward fashion. So he calls them out. Your religion is for you. The things you've been doing are not for me. This is what I've been saying for so long. He says this is what the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets in verse 7. He refers back to hundreds of years prior, at least 70 and more than that still. When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited. Before the exile, guys, I've been telling you this. You say you've been fasting for so long, for 70 years. Was it really for me? I told you this so long ago. The reason you went to exile was because you wouldn't listen to this message. So he refers back to that time then, starting in verse 8. So he's just in verse 7, he says, were not these the words that I said back then? In verse 8, he starts recounting those words. The word came to Zechariah, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused. So God reveals God we're living in this section. He, he is contrasting their spirituality, their selfward spirituality that is now exposed as being aimed on themselves, and he now reveals what Godward living looks like. Rather than just doing little practices for no particular purpose other than to benefit my own standing, he says, here's what I want you to do. What do we, what do we say now? Uh, engage in your quiet time every day and you know, sing the right songs and listen to the right songs and watch the right movies or don't watch them at all and spend the right time with your family. Not too much, not too little, but just right. Like Goldilocks. <laughs> Get it just right. Do, do this and do that in just the right ways. And believe all the right things, of course. Have your theology correct. Make sure that you're separated enough from the people that have bad theology and make sure by all means that you engage the correct political perspective. God doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say anything that we might consider a traditional answer to the question of how can I know that I'm right with God in this passage. Render true judgments. Give correct justice, like true judgments and the things that are going on in life. 
whether that's a judge in a courtroom or a parent handling their children, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Care for one another. Have compassion, kindness, mercy in the midst of life. Mercy for those who maybe don't deserve it in the moment, but having an understanding of what's going on and the difficulties there. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless. The widow, right, those whose husbands have died and who especially in that society had almost nothing as a result because so much was tied into your husband and the, the land that he had and all of this. The way that society was structured, it's not like you could just have your husband die and then go get a job. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the orphans also. They don't have any parents. They got nothing. Maybe they're street kids. Unless someone takes them in, they have no hope. The sojourner traveling through the land, trying to find a place to stay that's safe, going to a new land in many cases. The poor, they have less than you in a variety of ways. And God has stated they'll be here. He said in Deuteronomy 15, there will always be poor among you. So the people of Israel never lacked an opportunity to care for the poor. Do not oppress those categories, these vulnerable categories, widow, fatherless, sojourner, poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That whole call, none of it says, make sure to believe the right thing about me. We need to realize that when God calls us to discipleship, he calls us to believe the right things, yes, and he calls us to live the right things. When God called his people out of Israel, he rescued them, saved them. They were already rescued. And then he said, now live like me. That's basically the summary of like the whole Torah after you get out of Exodus 10. All the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy says, now live like me. Represent me to the nations. Be my people. Be holy as I am holy. Set apart as I have, been, as I have set you apart. Like all that thing. That's the big cry of those books. God's telling the people how to be in right relationship with him and how to display him to the world. So when God calls here and basically calls them to justice, to doing rightly, to caring for their neighbors rightly, he's calling them to a, and us to a gospel-fueled justice. He wants us to act like him. It's interesting lots of times when you're parenting because... Your kids have lots of questions and lots of requests. And it's the request part that sometimes causes some extra attention because your child comes up and says, can I please have a third piece of cake? And you say, no, you've already had two. And the second one was only because you asked your mother and I didn't realize and she didn't know you hadn't already had one. And they say, yeah, yeah, but, but can I have a third piece of cake? No, I, I just said that. Yeah, yeah, but can I have a third, please? I really want it. Uh, you seem not to be hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth. Let's cover this again. No, you have already had two. And the second one you should not have had because the only reason you got it was because you asked your mom and she didn't know that you already had one. I'm saying no. Okay, but why, why not? I want to have one. Okay, well... Um, I can only tell you the same thing so many times. Right? I mean, this, I'm sure this actually only happens in my family. None of the rest of you have ever heard of this, but hey, it sometimes tends to, to work itself out. 
But this is exactly the thing that we do so often. And it's like God sitting here saying to them, look, were not these the words, verse 7, that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? It's like he's saying to them, the answer won't change just because you ask over and over. Because you just ask the same thing over and over and because you want to start from yourself over and over and over again, I'm not going to change my answer. I've already told you what is good, what is right. I've already told you that I want you to live like me. Not that I want you to live like the world around and then perform some sacrifices to think that you're good to go. It's not going to change just because you ask repeatedly. Deuteronomy 24, 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Micah 6, 6 through 8. When, God says, when, when Micah is giving God's words to the people and it says, how shall I come to the Lord? With what shall I bring an offering to him? And God says, I want you to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. This is not a, a suddenly new message that God is giving here to his people. It is not an unfamiliar one. It is literally thousands of years old. It's the message he had been giving them all throughout their history. So for God to say it again now in Zechariah is not like, hey, here's a new idea. I've decided that I want you to care for the poor now. New thing, I know, I never cared about the poor in the past. No, it's, this is literally from the very beginning of Israel's history. From the time that he rescued them from Egypt, he said, care for the poor. Love the foreigners and the widows and the fatherless. Love the travelers. Be hospitable, be loving, show mercy this is what living like God looks like. It's like God saying, this is what I would do if I were among you, so this is what I want you to do. And it's not a question of comparative righteousness, of, oh, well, I love the poor better than he does because I actually care about them one time a year and he never does. No, no, it's a, it's a call that we cannot duck, that the people of Israel could not duck. They can't just point out that well, I did something at some point and I'm fine now. That's the whole problem in the first place. They say, should I keep fasting to make my son go with God? He says, no, your fasting was pointless anyway. There's other places where, where God calls out their fasting specifically as a sham throughout the Old Testament prophets as well. Where he says, your fasting is pointless. Live for me. Even that particular response is nothing new. And at the end of the day, our gospel is very short-sighted if it doesn't lead to us living like God. If we think the only purpose of the gospel is to make sure that we have our ticket punched to eternity, and that's where it ends, we've missed the point. He didn't save us to give us reassurance that we have eternal life and then we can just do whatever we feel like live comfortably, not worry about the rest, because here we go. He saved us, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for good works that he prepared for us to do. He saved us to make us like himself and proclaim the gospel to everyone around us. He saved us to refine us, Romans 12, Romans 8, all over the place, to make us into the image of Jesus. He saved us to use Jesus' own words from Matthew 28, Make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So he didn't just say, all right, cool. You bought your ticket. I'll let you on the flight. 
That's what's going to happen on Friday, right? David and Anak and I, we're going to get on a plane. And the reason we're getting on the plane is because we've got a ticket. You know what else we're going to do once we're on the plane to contribute? Nothing. We're going to sit there and maybe chat about stuff, maybe fall asleep, hopefully fall asleep at some point. Maybe watch a video, maybe listen to some music, maybe read a book, whatever. There's only like 10, maybe 15 people who will be contributing to that flight. That's the pilots, it's the flight attendants, and the mechanics who got it going in the first place. None of us sitting on that plane will be contributing to that flight. We're going to be the cargo. <laughs> and what God's calling us to do is not be cargo on the way toward heaven, on the way toward eternity. He saved us to be part of the kingdom. He saved us to be part of what he's doing. He saved us to be changed into his image, not just follow along on the coattails of his image. So when he says here, do right things, and when he says in 1 John that we're reading through as a church, do right things, he confronts us we are not just seeking a disconnected intellectual faith that says, I believe the right thing, so I've punched my ticket, huzzah, I'll do whatever I feel like now. Rightly lived, rightly expressed faith in Jesus is active. We can't get away from it. Every time we try to, the Bible just throws it back in our face. Every time we, we try to settle into a space where all I have to do is believe the, the right things, the Bible's like, no, 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 you, you need to live right. You need to love people. You need to care about the poor. Care for them well. And that's hard, by the way, caring for the poor well in our modern society because it's such a complex issue. And there are so many ways that sometimes the things we try to do to help the poor are actually just us expressing our own Messiah complex that we can fix everything. <laughs> and the ways that we try to help actually hurt the poor and all this kind of stuff. It's not easy. The fact that God calls us to these things, loving the widow and fatherless and having no evil against one another in your heart? Like that's just, like, how are we supposed to grow up ever <laughs> without devising evil against one another? He's not saying, hey, this is simplistic, super easy, done. No, no, no. It is simple. It's not easy. Simple, it's small and contained. It's a, it's a sound bite. We could almost put this on a tweet, which means it must be simple. It's even enough for for modern indigestion to handle. But it's not easy. Thank God we have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Thank God that he has come to make the way. So he reveals God we're living and it looks different than a mere intellectual faith is gonna want. And it challenges us, especially as we live in the year 2000s with all of the theological history throughout church history and all of the, the wrong usage of activity versus faith, all the times that people have tried to just earn eternity by their works and not care at all about right faith, and the times that people have cared nothing for works and just as long as they believe something, they'll, they'll murder people, but as long as they believe the right thing, it doesn't matter. God calls us to recognize that the truth is we need to be like Jesus and follow him in faith that believes the right things and lives rightly. To use much broader, more grandiose theological terms, orthodoxy, right belief, orthopraxy, right action, that we are living and acting rightly. So what happens when God gives them this message back prior to the exodus or to the exile, sorry? Selfward spirituality 
rejects revelation. It's like the classic example, whether it's, you know, obnoxiously in a cartoon or actually in real life when someone's like, la, 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 I'm not listening, not listening. You think of Gollum in Lord of the Rings where Smeagol's, no one likes you. He's like, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. <laughs> saying, I'm not, not going to hear you. But then lots of times, stop telling me that I'm dumb. I don't hear you saying that. Well, you must. Stop telling me to do the chores. I don't want to hear it. It's amazing. It's amazing how, and this is not just true of children. We just see it a lot more easily with our children because we do it too as adults. It's amazing how much easier it is for children to hear, hey, it's time for ice cream, than it is to hear, hey, I'd like you to clean up your room, please. Time for ice cream. Woohoo! <laughs> Running from across the house, two miles away, and all I did was whisper, and they still heard it. Right next to them, I need to clean up your room. Five times, I need to clean up your room. Need to clean. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. All right? <laughs> but, my dear friends, it's the exact same thing we do with God. We pray and we cry out, God, help me, God, save me, God, rescue me from these sins. And he's like, I've been telling you for years what you need to do. Are you just going to actually do it? <laughs> when... When God says, eternity is coming, we're like, yay, eternal life and comfort, woohoo, safety, remaking the world. That is, it is awesome. It is awesome that God's going to do that. But then when God says, I want you to love the poor and care for the widow and do hard things, we're like, oh, he didn't actually say that. Hang on, if I read this guy, he explained it differently and explained it away so it doesn't apply to me. We find ways that the things we don't like, we don't listen to. And I think we need to take very seriously this section because there's a great danger that our spirituality, even Christian daily spirituality, can be selfward and can reject the call of God. If the Bible never challenges your daily life, you're probably not reading it well. Because at our very best, we are still sinners saved by grace on the way to glorification, but by no means glorified. We still sin, we still struggle. We still deal with the brokenness of this world and the fall and our own broken passions. So let's make sure that as we seek and listen, we aren't those who are just seeking what tickles our own ears, whether that's locally at Connection Fellowship or from afar from YouTube or whatever else. There are many, many, many voices available to tickle your ears, and I promise they will. They'll even ask you to like and subscribe. And sometimes you'll do it because you'll feel like it and it feels good to like something, I suppose. Or maybe they don't ask you to like and subscribe and you feel better because you don't do that silly foolishness because you're above that social media stuff just like me. Uh, <laughs> but you're still potentially gathering voices to suit your own ears. So please, whether you are here or whether you're on YouTube or wherever, take it all to Scripture and what is God actually saying. Take in the challenges as his love to you his love to me. Finally, in this passage, verse 13 and 14, God condemns selfward spirituality. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. End scene. 
That's heavy. The place that God leaves them. And I want us to feel that for a minute. This doesn't just turn to, and then the people repented, and it's hopeful. Like, God intentionally, by what he gave Zechariah to write down here, and what is recorded in this history, leaves us in this spot right now. Finishing this particular chunk of chapter 7 on, when they didn't listen, I scattered them, and the land was desolate. The pleasant land, the pleasant land of milk and honey, that God had led them to was desolate. When we don't listen, when we plug our ears and turn the other way, when we accept what we like and pretend we didn't hear what we don't like, the only end result is a scatteredness and a desolation. Our selfward spirituality can only end in condemnation of that spirituality. Praise Jesus, he has rescued us. and paid for our sins so that even when we find ourselves trapped in a selfward spirituality cycle, he still will cover our sin. He still has paid for it if we are his people. But may we not be those who are barely saved as if through a fire. May it be instead that God is refining us and using us and we can worship him and praise him with our lives. So I'd encourage you, let the, let the heaviness of ending in this way, in this passage, rest on you. Like God didn't just say here, and then the people responded to the call of Zechariah in turn, which that is said earlier on. In chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 6, halfway through, it says, So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. So we've already seen a time in Zechariah where it's affirmed, that the people listened to some of what Zechariah was saying and repented. So there's a reason why it doesn't say it here. And it might be that they did repent, but God didn't want us to sit there with this message. He wanted us to hear this message as saying, are you going to live Godwardly or are you going to live selfwardly? Only the Godward path is affirmed. Only the Godward path is actually Godward. The selfward path, whether you try to live selfwardly for Jesus or whether you live selfwardly as a godless person, is still a condemned path. And like I said, praise Jesus, he will rescue us regardless. But let's evaluate our lives through that lens. So why do we need this? Some of what I was just saying. But I, I appreciate a book called Respectable Sins. It came out probably 20 years ago. Um, and it has gone through reprinting now, so like that cover's not even the same cover that I first saw with it. It's a great book by Jerry Bridges where basically he's like, look, we talk a lot about big sins. We talk about adultery, we talk about murder, we talk about uh, homosexuality, we talk about other things that, that are big, so to speak, sins. What we don't talk about a lot is the things that we consider more respectable. Respectable people do these. They're more hidden, they're more beneath the surface, or they're more like not that big a deal things that we just put out on display in, in movies or whatever and don't even recognize they're there, things that we do in daily life and don't recognize them. So he talks through like uh, gossip and various other things that just are part of life. But the one that was, for me, the first time I read that book, the most convicting was ungodliness, a chapter on ungodliness, by which he did not mean being a rank heretic. He meant just not paying attention to God in your daily life, like just kind of chilling and living and what happens, happens. Just being ungodly. It's not being anti-God. It's not being satanic. It's just 
general disconnected living. And I think that's a huge amount of the call here. Because when we allow ourselves to settle into an ungodliness fashion, it's very easy for our spirituality to turn selfward. To be able to affirm myself in the midst of my ungodliness that I'm still doing well. That even though I'm not doing anything that looks like Jesus in daily life, I still did my two-minute reading this morning of that devotional book, so I'm still fine, that kind of thing. And part of what I think this passage wants us to see in big letters is that no amount of religious observance, whatever that looks like, can make up for a lack of discipleship. If, if we're not actually disciples of Jesus following him, no amount of religious observance tacked onto that is going to suddenly make up the difference. So when God says to them, did you really fast for 70 years for me? No, it was for yourself. He's like, it doesn't matter that all these 70 years, I mean, who here has fasted for 70 years, like fasted along the way at various times? None of us. Most of us aren't even 70 years old. Who here has even fasted for one week straight of anything? Maybe some of us at times. Maybe I didn't play video games for a week or I skipped lunches for a week or whatever. These people were fasting for 70 years. God doesn't say you didn't do that. He says you did do that. It was pointless. <laughs> Perhaps even worse. Like You didn't do it. Well, at least there's something you can start doing. Yeah, you did it and it was pointless. It's like, wow, all that, all that time I spent, I was wasting it. I was wasting that time because I was doing it for myself instead of for him. This is the same message Jesus later gave to the Pharisees when he called them out a few times and said, have you not read? And then he would cite the Old Testament, specifically Hosea, uh, Hosea 6, where Hosea 6 calls his people to justice and mercy and, and love. As I mentioned earlier, he saved us for good works. So Jesus is looking for followers, not mere practitioners. He's not looking for those who will practice the faith or the religion. He's looking for those who will follow him. And again, as stated earlier, so let's be really clear, these two things look often very similar. But they're on very different trajectories from a very different heart. And so I would encourage all of us to think through what has God been telling me for so long that I just need to actually do? What is it that I just haven't listened to and I need to just do? Where is it where I'm praying for, a, for an answer and he's already given it to me six times? And I just need to accept the answer he's given, even though I don't like it. And even broader than that, what does it look like to continue living in a Godward fashion? That my whole life would be oriented toward him and for him and for his glory and not my own. And because of Jesus, all of that can be done in hope. Because of the Holy Spirit, all of that is done with enlightenment because he is the one who has saved us. So let's pray and uh, have the opportunity to sing a couple more songs. God, thank you that you have saved us despite ourselves. That even in the midst of, of being sinners and rebels against you, that you came and you changed our hearts. You gave us a love for you, Holy Spirit, that you are stirring up family affections, that we can worship you, that we can love one another, we can love your world. I pray that our practices coming to church on Sunday, singing songs, going to pod, reading scripture, praying together, any number of things, that these would not be misused, that they would not be, we think we're so good because we did this thing, that we would not be binding our standing before you on 
the fact that we've gone to church for however many years. But instead that our, our Christian disciplines would be a way of fueling our relationship with you, our love for you. Not a way to affirm ourselves in our own eyes or affirm ourselves in the eyes of others. You have given us such gifts in so many ways and we pray that you would help us not to abuse them. That we would not be found at the end of the day realizing that we have wasted so much time seeking our own benefit instead of seeking you. That we would not be the ones who hike many, many miles only to end up at the wrong destination with those efforts. Thank you that those whom you have called, you have predestined and you are sanctifying and you will glorify and you are taking us home to eternity by whatever path you have given. We pray that in the midst of that you would help us to serve faithfully, that we would not be just dragged along not realizing we're trying to head the other direction, but you're carrying us home by your grace anyway. We want to run toward you. We want to run serving this world as you do, as you would if you were here in the flesh. We want our existence to look like Jesus. I pray that you'd help us to be honest and humble enough to admit our failings to ourselves and to you, to be clear-minded enough to see where any of our activity might be self-serving rather than God-serving, might be self-word rather than God-word. In the midst of all of this, so much praise for Jesus and for the gospel and for the fact that we're saved as we look at as we look at texts that call us out and condemn some of our faulty efforts, we're so thankful for what Jesus came to do. As we look at the fact that even in our best efforts, we're often so misguided and you have saved us anyway. So thank you and help us to, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to encourage one another in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.